0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.
1: And it is coming up to 4 o'clock in the time for Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. Today, what is the likelihood of war between Iran and the US. i be speaking with Stephen Darnley from South Australia. He's a member of IPAN, Independent Peaceful Australia Network there. A young Sahari journalist in court yesterday in Morocco. She could be facing 15 years in jail for reporting violence against citizens in Western Sahara. Kate Lewis has the story about the case... The Force Posture Agreement with the US, Bevan Ramsden, also from the Independent Peaceful Australian Network, this time in Sydney. We'll be talking about our relationships with the US and where it could lead us to. And a talk by Jacob Gregg at the Independent, uh, sorry, at the Unitarian Church two weeks ago, focusing on Julian Assange. But first, let's hear it for Mr. Kevin.
2: A weak journalist, and when the U.S. of the U.N. of the U continues its relentless crusade to teach evil, evil Iran a thing or two about sticking to an agreement, because big supremo Donald Trump or the poor knows you can't trust anyone who sticks to an agreement. Proven when, as the USOB sends a fleet of train killer packed with weapons of mass destruction flotilla to show how it treats people who honour an agreement, to compound their evil, Iran shoots down an innocent USOB drone just doing a bit of spying over U.S. of Iranian territory Uh, just wondering John what if Iran sent a fleet off the U.S. of coast and drones to spy over the U.S. of we asked Donald's trained killing and slaughter advisor John Beltham that would be aggressive provocation and would be just the excuse I'm looking for. Sorry, uh, could force the U.S. of reluctantly to go to war. After all, there is universally accepted by all our great friends, like True Blue U.S. of Iranian territory, but clearly there is no Iranian U.S. of territory. Thus, as the US plans to strangle further evil Iran economically, top marks to the other European parties to the agreement for their courage in pointing out to Donald that Iran has abided by the agreement by telling evil Iran to behave itself and stop upsetting Donald and John. Thankfully, they all have good peace love and nuclear weapons of mass destruction they can use to prevent evil Iran developing evil war love and nuclear weapons of mass destruction. Uh, you haven't thought of no one having uh, nuclear weapons Of uh, For God's sake, we are people of peace. We have a responsibility to maintain the peace. The U.S. OBS unflinching commitment to world peace reflected also in Donald's son-in-law, Jared curse the Arabs' plan for peace in the Middle East, promoting offering billions to the evil Palestinian non-people to allow them to continue being occupied and stateless. Uh, this is your idea. So the USO will provide the billions. Well, no, 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 we quite properly expect the other countries in the Middle East to cough up the cash, but we are proud to have fought up the idea. It it shows our sincere quest for peace. And Jared and his father-in-law expressed their anger at the non-state non-people for rejecting the fabulous offer and saying they actually wanted a country, when Jared and Donald pointed out you can't just give people a country and throw out the existing population. And all this showed how the non-people are not sincere in seeking peace like the us of and zion are sincere which is true of course and what a sensible move for peace to hold a meeting seeking peace at which neither good, good sincere zion or evil evil insincere non-state non-people are present that should work wonders Mentioned the courage of the other signatories to the Iran agreement and courage is running riot this week. We have to admire the Socialist Party for having the courage to abandon its pretense of supporting the underprivileged and realising its chances of becoming the government so it can abandon the underprivileged is to adopt the filthy rich. Exemplified by shadowy economic guru Jim Chalmers the rich. Well, let's test the case for the abandonment. The only way that scuttle them more or less, son, can pay for his plan to give tax cuts to the big end of town is by making more devastating cuts to hospitals and schools. The central defining feature of his tax cuts are that the lion's share goes to the wealthiest true blue Aussies. Jim got stuck into the government before the election. By the way, hope he knows more about economics than grammar, the noun controlling the verb, but that's my pedantry. In Scuttle Them's True Blue Aussie, a cancer sufferer will pay more, so that a millionaire or a multinational will pay less, he went on. And it says everything you need to know about the caring business class party when they're willing to see workers' wages be cut, but give millionaires at the top end of town an $11,000 a year tax cut and more, but doesn't that highlight the class warfare politics of envy nonsense the Socialist Party went on with? Emphasis upon the went, past tense, but thankfully Jim, like the rest of the socialist lot, has seen the light. He acknowledged some of the language we used, like the above quotes, was wrong, and now accepts that people earning 200000 plus a year is a good thing. That is a good thing. We want more people doing well. As my Supremo and would be big Supremo, Anthony All Been Easy, now says if you are on a good wicket in this country, we say good on you. Uh, like Gina Jim or Anthony, you're a Pratt. Good on them. They've earned every cent, they inherited it. Good on them. Oh yes, doesn't everything point to an exciting policy-free, no-policy policy, policy, giving true blue Aussies a real choice at the next election before supporting the filthy rich or between supporting the filthy rich or supporting the filthy rich? They're displaying all the courage and commitment of former socialist leader, brackets failed, Kim Beesneys back when the little bald-headed bloke who used to be big supremo in those dark ages and his offsider of Peter Root the workers beat up the Tampa and children overboard lies, showing how much more civilised we are to the other paving the way for the bipartisan policy of compassion that has been our No Proper Papers queue-jumping illegal boat people policy ever since, leaving us to ponder why the Socialist Party bothers to keep trying to prove it's just as cruel and heartless as the caring business class lot when they, the caring business class lot, keep building them over their head with it anyway. They're soft on, they're soft on No Proper Papers illegals. For goodness sake, how much more inhumane do they have to get So why not just cop the criticism, offer a real alternative, just act as a real, wait for it, wait for it, opposition? now I know how we all miss former Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, Kelly Oda, why worker so evil who leapt off the sinking ship before it was righted, but today in an interview with her successor, Katie alienate workers, Katie told us she was following in the footsteps of giants in Kelly and two caring business class party big supremos and former economic guru Peter Costello bosses like to see her de- like to see a definition of a non-giant and that the people of her electorate said she was the ideal person to represent them because she shared their interests and concerns and values. We share our concerns for the massive problems of the filthy rich self-awareness and honesty from fourth estate protector of our interest Lord Rupert of Wapping Scion so, whopping Lockie Moorcrap whose wealth and big caring employer position is attributable to his mother and father having sex during an interview with his own media outlets, sort of interview with himself modestly informing us of just how wonderful, caring, responsible and especially profitable is the News Very Limited Corporation telling us how he was raised to love newspapers they make a fortune No, no, that was me putting words in his mouth Whereas the Lord Rupert Empire would never put words in people's mouths No, Lockie said Lord Rupert imbued in us an appreciation for the print business But also an appreciation of the creative processes See self-awareness and honesty for where better than Newsbury Limited To enjoy the creative processes And note not print media but print business in the business of sport rugby's man of god israel fall oh they sack me sacked from his four million a year job is pleading with lovers of the dear baby jesus and haters of atheists gays well on the descent into the eternal fires of hell sinners generally to crowdfund his appeal against his sacking seeking three million from the lovers of the dear baby $1 $1 million less than his annual salary, not allowing for his sponsorships. And to show how his co-lovers will fall for any old story, like the eternal fires of hell, for instance, they've been handing over their hard and not so hard earned to Israel. And although it suffered a bit of a setback yesterday, it has now been taken over, by, taken up by the true dear baby Jesus lobby. And Israel has also hired a top end of town PR spin doctor company to assist. In the fundraising. Out of all that, I reckon the big, big and big, big winner will be the PR company and Clearly, as the government is urged by caring employers to prioritise caring business class party reform, the big winners will be the lazy, avaricious workers and evil unions, because the sundry chambers of profit screaming for changes tell us their only concern is creating jobs for the ingrates. But, as they have been telling us for years, the pendulum has swung too far toward the workers. And my word, we've all noticed that. And caring employers are being crucified by wages and Crippling conditions like health and safety, making it essential as part of the Back to the Sensible Centre reforms to deregister and cast out any evil union which sees its role as representing its members. When Scuttle, them and the team, and we assume Anthony, Jim, and the team now know, caring employers and ingrate workers have common interests, something the sadly lamented former big Supremo nuclear hawk himself knew quite well. And evil unions representing their members only maintains the flawed philosophy that class struggle, the politics of envy, big end of town, still exists, whereas Anthony and Jim now know there is no big end of town and truly evil unions must be taught a lesson. Finally, aren't the next three years of caring business class policy and socialist non-policy going to be fun, fun, fun? Good afternoon. And it's good afternoon
1: to Mr... Kevin Healy. Begin the assessment of the likelihood or otherwise of war between the US and Iran with a quote from an article by Noel Turnbull titled Remember the Alamo, Remember the Maine, etc., etc., etc. For a country such as the US, which has been at war for 226 years, that's 93% of the time, in the 240 years since its independence in 1776, it is remarkable that it has resorted so often to manufacturing excuses to go to war, instead just doing it as it usually does. Of course, the manufacturing is partly a result of the abiding ignorance, misremembering, malevolent intent propaganda and fundamental belief in the nation's peace-loving nation, which infect its population and many of its political leaders. For his assessment of the likelihood of such an outcome, I spoke earlier today with Stephen Darley from the Independent Peaceful Australia Network in South Australia. Stephen, first to focus on the history of the relationship between the two countries of the U.S. and Iran and most analysts point the year 1953 when the democratically elected government of Prime Minister Mohammad Mazadeki was overthrown in a coup d'etat orchestrated by Britain and the U.S. through the CIA. Why was he seen as such a threat?
3: They were proceeding to nationalize the oil industry in Iran, which had been dominated by, mainly by the British up until then, because you, you probably know that BP was originally the Anglo-Persian oil company, so they were being taken over by the American interests, but uh, that was the main thing, that they thought that uh, the nationalisation was a threat to their economic interests, and so they decided on one of their many regime changes.
1: Was it a very rich, or is it still a very rich oil field?
3: Uh, yes. Iran is, is one of the top producers in the world, um, so that's something that the Americans have in mind as well. Um, I mean, you know, the Americans, as you, you know, are getting a lot of their energy now from fracking at great cost, but they still want to control the um, oil resources around the world. It, apart from anything else, it puts a, a hand around the throat of most other countries, so Iran is, is a top target. Besides which, of course, as you know, in 1979, Iran overthrew the American puppet, uh, the Shah, and uh, then they went ahead and humiliated America by the occupation of the U.S. embassy. So the, the Americans, you know, they hate well.
1: It's <laughs> a good way to put it. But there must have been a lot of resentment in 1953 when this happened, and a lot of people lost their lives. Did that happen?
3: Oh yes, yes. There was there was quite a lot of, of loss of life. Um, but back then, that hardly got reported in the West. I mean, you don't—they didn't report very much then about uh, the death of people in the developing world as they saw it, and so um, it really got very little coverage. But yeah, there was there was death and injuries in in Iran in and, and significant numbers, and the Iranians um, have resented it ever since. I mean, it's not that the clerical regime in Iran is overwhelmingly um, popular. There's plenty of resistance to it, but they identify themselves with Iranian nationalism and and most Iranians respond to that, especially at the moment.
1: What about the rule of the Shah? What was that like after 1953?
3: Well, his regime was notoriously both corrupt and brutal. The um, Shah's intelligence services uh, had a notorious reputation for, for disappearing people, basically, doing what their counterparts in south america for instance uh, and what happens now in saudi arabia um, simply anyone who's a critic was um, arrested and probably in most cases killed
1: well 40 years on after that we have the islamic revolution in iran why did it take so long
3: because our, the u.s power back then was was overwhelming far far more so than now and and they've they put in place a regime. They supplied it with um, arms and uh, diplomatic uh, support. Um, and the uh, external forces were also in favor of the Americas at that time. They were still driving forward. This is the time, remember, when the American economy was booming in the 1950s. So everything was driving forward for the U.S. then, and they, they could exert far more on challenge pressure than they, they can now.
1: what was the reaction of the West to the revolution
3: well it was opposition in lots of ways but even then the key concern of other countries was still to keep the oil flowing Um, and so it was they're not going to take up the same position as the Americans did and increasingly that's been the case that they uh, they didn't want to have oil uh, not flowing to them that's always been the key to the situation in the Middle East. You don't want to go too far down the track with the Americans. Um, but, that, yeah, so they, they supported the Americans up to a point in their attitude to the Iranian regime, but uh, after a while it settled down to relatively normal financial transactions over the oil.
1: And how long did it take for the U.S. to bring sanctions in against the, the government?
3: Uh, fairly quickly, after the... Um, the, they've, they've mounted up over the years but they brought them in fairly quickly because of the influence uh, the particular challenge over the um, embassy because that um, that humiliated the u.s uh, internationally and they they uh, didn't want that to um, to stand without response
1: what sort of sanctions were they or in place even now
3: well i'm not sure of the exact nature of the sanctions back then but Various ways in which they targeted individuals, uh, similar to what they are now, really in lots of ways, and retarding the the um, Iranian uh, oil sales. But most importantly to them, they started to build up rivals and enemies to the Saudis, particularly uh, to the Iranians, particularly the Saudis. Saudis and Iran are regional rivals in lots of ways, apart from being two different forms of um, of Islam.
1: So when did it start to heat up to what we've got now?
3: Well, probably you could take it back to the um, oil price crisis in 1974 and then again in 1978 when, in response to the American subsidies and support for Israel, the uh, Arab countries started to jack up. I mean, it was a bit of but it wasn't just international solidarity it was also a bit of self-interest they wanted to increase the price of oil um, and they exerted some degree of independence even the saudis and so oil price went up and the western economies went into recession in lots of ways because of the price rise then which is Of course, uh, an object lesson for this situation, now. So the the 1970s was was very critical in that, um, and then the situation uh, uh, during the 1980s when the U.S. basically sponsored the Iraqis under Saddam Hussein to start a war with Iran, a very brutal and very destructive war in which um, hundreds of thousands died on both sides including the use of poison gas by the uh, Iraqis uh, on large scale. So that people in Iran remember that very much. They don't blame the Iraqis so much for it, uh, they blame the Americans for it.
1: And then after 9-11 what happened then?
3: Well, this narrative has grown that the Iranians are the biggest terrorist sponsors in the world. It's it's utter nonsense. Um, There's there's an American senator who's just sent a letter to, he's actually a Republican senator who's just sent a letter to President Trump. He's from the isolationist wing and he basically told the president that um, we all know that the biggest sponsor of terrorism in the world is is our ally, the Saudis. And uh, what, what they refer to when they talk about iran being a sponsor of terrorism is um, things like the support for hezbollah but hezbollah is is not by most people's reckoning a terrorist organization they are a major part of the political landscape in lebanon what their key problem is from the Americans' point of view is that they're a major enemy of israel and of course in, in 2006 uh, they defeated israel when israel invaded lebanon so that's that's the sort of thing that they mean we all know that politicians talk and use words that are bandable, Let's put it that way. Um, but in relation to American diplomacy abroad, that's that's reached a, a high level. And so, by terrorists, they simply mean, in this case, enemy of us, um, who we don't um, uh, we want to vilify. But it's not really working. Um, you know, it's not really working. The Americans are becoming increasingly isolated in the world in relation to iran, uh, to iran as well as other places and certainly there seems very little chance of um, european countries coming on board with the full american agenda
1: talk more about israel and the relationship with, with both the the us and saudi against iran
3: well it's the relationship between them is that the americans basically urge the israelis to take the lead in attacks on iran and the the israelis take the lead on uh, want the Americans to take the lead they both know militarily it would be very difficult to attack iran with any great success because it's a medium power with a lot of missiles but they they both oppose it very strongly israel to a large degree because of the role they play with hezbollah supporting hezbollah but also their role in syria the government, as you know, in in Israel at the moment is is a far right, very much greater Israel supporter. They they want to expand the uh, both the borders of Israel, take over the Palestinian lands completely, and other lands. They've just supposedly, according to the Americans, annexed the um, Golan Heights, um, which are which is Syrian land. So they're, they're very, very expensive, but Iran is probably the, the biggest barrier to that expansion. They've built a very expedient alliance with Saudi Arabia. Uh, they're both supporters of the terrorist groups in, the, the genuine terrorist groups in uh, Syria, the, uh, both ISIS and Al-Qaeda, uh, the Al-Qaeda affiliates. They're, the Israelis have been Help had their wounded in their hospitals in the last few years. Um, the Saudis supply them with arms. Israel keeps on attacking Syria, so there's an expedient alliance there. And the Israelis also appear to be helping the um, Saudis in um, in Yemen um, in their completely unconscionable war in that country. You know the, what the United Nations Secretary General calls the. Um, greatest humanitarian disaster in the world today so the israelis are involved in that to to some degree or other with drones at least possibly um with supplying arms to the the saudis it's not clear
1: and what's the role or position of the other kingdoms muslim kingdoms
3: well the other muslim states in the area are of various views iran has um even though it's not arab it has good relations with, with Kuwait, with Oman, and with Qatar, to such degree with Qatar, that of course the Saudis are now, have been for the last few years, blockading Qatar, and they made it explicit, it's because they're too close to, to Iran. That blockade is increasingly ineffective, uh, and the Americans are wanting to pull back from it because it's economically having, having a negative effect. But the, that's part of what I was saying earlier about the Iranians not being isolated, um, of course, they have close relationships with both Iraq and Syria. The uh, Iraqis are now basically making it very clear that the Americans have, will not start a war with Iran from their territory, um, and they want the American troops that are still there, I think about ten thousand, uh, withdrawn from from Iraq. So that's not going so well with with them. UAE, the United Arab Emirates, is probably one of the chief promoters of opposition to Iran. Um, they're uh, uh, very much involved in the war in Yemen, and they're uh, opposing Iranians, but they're also in the, the Gulf, and their oil supplies goes, as with Kuwait and Iran, uh, through the Straits of Hormuz, the narrow straits at the entrance to the the Gulf, which is... Pretty critical for the, uh, not only those countries, but for the international oil price. Does Turkey come into this scenario at all? Well, they're the third major player in the region in that they're also uh, aspiring to be a hegemonic power. And they're playing both sides of the the game, if you like. They're in dispute with the Americans at present over buying arms from, particularly the S-400 missile system from the, the Soviets, uh, sorry, the Russians and the Americans are very much unhappy about that um, for a whole variety of reasons and they've been um, opposing Turkey and calling, just saying that they'll sanction Turkey in various ways even though Turkey is a member of, of NATO um, and ostensibly as an independent country has a right to buy its arms from anyone that, where they want but they are also in dispute with the Syrians um, given that they've sponsored some of the terrorist groups in Syria uh, as well. So they're, they're kind of playing both sides of the equation at present. And as you know, they've just gone through an election which saw a um, loss of support, not a defeat, but a loss of support to um, Erdogan, the uh, president. So they're, they're undergoing internal disputes. Possibly, I'm not saying I know this for sure, possibly with some input from the Americans, we always know when, that the americans stick their fingers into internal affairs in other countries and and then squeal about other countries doing it to them
1: what about russia on the border
3: russia and uh, is getting increasingly close to china because they both feel threatened by the u.s and they also both are in some ways technologically superior to the u.s um and russia has its own role in the middle east It, it um Basically played a major role in resurrecting the Syrian government and the Syrian army to uh, defeat its enemies um, they 're uh, also relatively close to iran they, they, they won 't they're very cautious in how they move in the middle east they don 't want to bring things down prematurely they 're also very well aware that the neolibs like Pompeo and bolton are even President Trump said that John Bolton wants to go to war with everyone. He just made a quote just recently, just a couple of days ago, I think, of that. And they're just aware of not escalating things too far and too fast. But at the same time, they're very much interested in an alternative world financial system and uh, particularly um, buying and selling oil in currencies other than the, the dollar, which they're pursuing with with China. Now that, of course presents a very significant um, economic problem for the United States. Cause that's how their economy has been, pro- been propped up for 50 years or so since the U.S. dollar went off the gold standard. Basically, the the oil price sustains them, or the selling of oil and buying of oil in the dollar, which allows the Americans to build up this enormous deficit that they have in the trillions of dollars now. Um, and that, in turn allows them to build up their military to the levels where it now is, it's, they're spending 30 times as much as as their nearest rival on the on the military. Uh, of course, that doesn't mean they're getting good value for their money, we all know about the F-35, the um, flying heap of crap as it's called by some people, um, most expensive piece of military equipment in history, but it's it doesn't work very well, and yet it's incredibly expensive, and um, you know, Australia's buying... 12 billion or more dollars worth of the, of the thing basically because of the American alliance
1: We have to emphasise though that Trump put Bolton and Pompeo in the positions they've got and now it's, why is he criticising them?
2: Well I
3: think it's part of the, the to and fro in the American situation The key issue we need to be aware of is that the American empire is in decline and the US is in decline um, It's still the most powerful military power in the world It's still just the most powerful economic power but it is definitely in decline and the people who run things in the u.s are very well aware of that it was played out in the last election trump was basically pushing an agenda to pull back from foreign wars save some money and spend it on infrastructure and resurrecting the american economy um whereas hillary clinton was actually more of a a warmonger in that election but of course it 's not simply confined to the two parties, and since then various pressures and influences on Trump has meant that he's had to succumb to uh, the neocons. The neocons uh are still very influential they 've got the support of the military industrial complex and the deep state in the u s the intelligence agencies, so he's now got two of them in his um his cabinet so i mean it's not that uh he's from moral point of view, opposed to war. He's just got an, a, a political agenda, and he wants to be re-elected, and he knows that a war with Iran or any significant increase in U.S. wars will be very unpopular in the U.S. The latest opinion poll says 60% of Americans oppose the idea of a unilateral attack on Iran. So that's, that's his concern. I don't think Pompeo and Bolton care about whether Trump gets re-elected or not. Um, And neither do their backers. because They know that if the Democrats get into power with some, when they like Joe Biden, then they'll still have significant influence. But um, Trump wants to be re-elected, so he's pulling back. Whether he has enough power to be able to hold him back long is is another question, and he may well succumb to it. The, The key thing the Iranians know is that the war... Has already begun with them because the sanctions are very much impacting on Iran. And sanctions in the past have been seen as warlike activities, and they're certainly viewed that way in Iran. So they see themselves at war already.
1: And that lie that I think it was Pompeo said, or Bolton, not sure which, well, the, you know, the sanctions, we didn't put them in to hurt the people of Iran. They're not being hurt, it's the government we're focusing <laughs> yes, on. Of
3: As in Venezuela, one of the key sources of revenue or the key source of revenue for the governments in those cases and therefore for any social um, benefits they provide is their oil sales. So, of course, it impacts on the people in those countries. And, you know, the Americans always say, oh, we're reacting to other people's activities, not taking a lead ourselves. You know, the, the agenda is fairly clear. The people like Wesley Clark, former the American general was on Democracy Now! a few years ago pointing out that at the time of the invasion of Iraq, he, he was told by contacts within the U.S. military that he just retired by that stage, but that, that um, the U.S. had a list of five different countries in the Middle East that they were going to successively either invade or subdue through other means, and Iran was the final one on the list. So, you know, they've moved through that. Of course, they lost in Syria, uh, and they have really not won in Iraq because the Iraqi government is now increasingly antagonistic to the United States. Um, So they they haven't succeeded in that, but they're still moving through their their list, and uh, and very much the Iranians are next on the list.
1: Fit nuclear power into the scenario.
3: Well, the Iranians have supposedly been seeking a nuclear option, according to the Americans. Now, it's not beyond possibility that the Iranians have. If you've got, if your opposition is the Israelis, who have got, according to the latest um, Stockholm International figures, got some 200 nuclear weapons, then you know it behoves you to think about having a nuclear weapon. But the inspectors um, have said that they do not have nuclear weapons at the moment, and they're not pursuing a a nuclear program. On the other hand, the Americans have just sold a large amount of nuclear power plant equipment to the Saudis, and we know that um, all but the first three nuclear weapons powers, that is the U.S., the Soviet Union, and Britain, obtained their nuclear weapons through uh, nuclear power. Programs, so that may well be the first step towards a Iranian, uh, sorry, a Saudi nuclear weapon. In which case, I don't think the Iranians would hold back. They know that uh, Prince Salman, the effective leader of um, Saudi Arabia, is quite reckless and quite uh, and hates the Iranians and anyone else, including his own family, who oppose him. So um, he's already made it clear that that uh, if he thinks that Iran has obtained a weapon, that Saudis would obtain a weapon. And it's a bit like the American claims they're um, retaliating. They uh, they get the retaliation in first. So a Saudi nuclear weapon would be a massive inflammation of the situation in in the Middle East.
1: Look to the so-called incidents in recent weeks, the tankers being attacked...
3: Well, it's interesting. There's there's two different scenarios on that from the left. I mean, we know what the Americans are saying, but um, that's what uh, what they would say. But there are influential and credible anti-imperialists who say that at least some of the attacks may well have been done by the Saudis. We've all seen that, uh, sorry, by the Iranians, we've all seen that the... um, the Americans are experienced in false flags. They've got into wars and in lots of situations. So it could very well be the Americans or the Saudis or even the Israelis were the main sponsors of these attacks. But it's not beyond the possibility that the Iranians have discreetly um, used their own supporters to do the, some of these attacks at least. Because after the first set of um, attacks a couple of weeks ago, there was um, the oil price spike to buy a, around 4%. Um, it's a nice spike with the shooting down of the American drone by um, 10%. And that's very much in the Iranians' favour because what they want is to put maximum pressure back on the US um, in retaliation for the, the sanctions. Um, and their main lever is the oil price, not because, as was said, it uh, directly affects the American Fuel supply, they um, get most of that from from gas now, but it affects the international economy, and therefore it puts major pressure on the U.S. and it, even a threat to the Straits of Hormuz can do that. So it's it's not beyond the possibility that the Iranians have have done some of these attacks. You know, and uh, maybe some of the others have been done by the the U.S. as as provocation. The key thing is that other countries are not coming on board with the U.S. in relation to this. Japan has expressed skepticism. Germany is wavering all over the place. Britain is one of the few countries that have come on board. But NATO in general is not backing the Americans uh, to the full on this.
1: And we don't hear the voice of the Iranian people?
3: Well, it's difficult to tell that. As I said, the the regime is not universally popular, um, and the the sanctions will be will be biting. And just as in Venezuela, some of the people will be blaming the the government for that. They're the pawn in the um, the game. But the Iranian people, I think, have a very strong sense of nationalism as part of their culture. It's a an ancient civilization, some three or four thousand years old. So so the Iranians very much, I think, view the Americans as the main cause of their economic problems, um, and they are rallying behind the regime simply for that reason, in, in the short term
1: anyway. So is there sense, finally, Stephen, that look to see who pulls back first?
3: Yes, because it's a very dangerous situation for the world. It could escalate. To the full-scale nuclear weapons it could stop short of that but australia be called into it because we're one of the most obsequious of u.s allies and we've we've hardly um refused american claims once so far Uh, we haven't challenged american interests for a very long time not since the modest challenge of the um, whitlam days so that could drag us into it although we're more likely to be kept for the um pacific situation the, uh, the the prospects for war are still quite high, but at the moment, I think the American military are playing a major role in it. They're basically saying, "Look, this is um, this is a very dangerous situation. This, uh, Iran is not Iraq. Uh, Iran is far better armed." Uh, interesting point in that respect. Remember, a few weeks ago, the uh, Americans sent with great fanfare an aircraft carrier with supporting fleet to the Gulf, the USS Lincoln. Well, it didn't enter the Gulf. It's still out in the Arabian Sea, and the reason for that is, well, the Americans say it's because they don't want to be provocative, but I think we can discount that. The real reason is that it's very vulnerable. The Persian Gulf is um, quite a narrow waterway. There's already an American fleet in there at uh, in Bahrain, the American Fifth Fleet, and it, the waters are very vulnerable to iranian mass attacks from missiles and one of those um, super carriers are worth two to three billion dollars that would be an enormous loss to the americans so they've, they've kept it out there so the american military are well aware of the dangers of iran of course any war would also cause the iranians to suffer massively as well there's no doubt about that but the, i think the military are opposing on whole on the whole the um, push to war by Pompeo and and Bolton and their supporters. Uh, So really the situation is very volatile, and things are are, um, are still up in the air. But the responses of um, Trump in the short term, at least to the drone shooting down, uh, are are quite revealing. He, He discounted its importance. After it it happened, both saying, "Oh well, no American was killed and um the uh the there was probably some silly general in Iran doing it, so he was providing excuses for for that um, or or more importantly for him not taking direct action until the sanctions today, so you know the sanctions have been increased again. So they're, they're ramping up the pressure, but I think they're probably going to be aiming at a, a medium-term solution, which is to, to see the sanctions bite. That's not to say that there couldn't be something happening in the meantime. And as I said, the Iranians aren't sitting back. I think they're going to be carrying out measures themselves. They will increase their cooperation with the, the Russians, with the Chinese. They might be encouraging their allies to attack a US allies' interests in the Middle East and ramping up the pressure on the oil price.
1: Thank you very much. No worries. I've been speaking with Stephen Darley from the Independent and Peaceful Australian Network, the South Australian branch, about the possibility or the probability maybe of war between the US and Iran if you're one of those who donated to the Radiothon a couple of weeks ago and you haven't quite got round to paying and you'd like to do it before the thirtieth of June, which then you can get your tax deductibility receipt for this financial year, this is a little message for you. Mm-hmm. or simply post your cheque or money order to P.O. Box 1277 Collingwood 3066 and be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to.
4: On
1: the line now is Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association And, Kate, let's begin with a, a trial in Morocco yesterday of a young Sahrawi journalist.
4: You're referring to Naza El Khalidi, who is a journalist. She works with a group called Akib Media, and they are Sahrawis, and they're wanting to record and send out the story of what is happening to them under Moroccan occupation. Naza was apprehended when she was streaming, live streaming on her phone, police beating demonstrators, peaceful demonstrators, last December. And she was taken in for questioning and not treated at all well, insulted and so on, but... She was released at that point but then subsequently she was uh, arrested at home and taken into custody and then they announced that there would be a trial against her. They had a new accusation which hadn't ever been leveled before at journalists which was that she wasn't properly licensed or she didn't have what you might call a press card to be practicing journalism and of course if any Saharawi applied for such a document i'm quite sure they would be refused but uh, that doesn't stop them from wanting to prosecute her for uh, lacking these documents or, or certifications so um, so she's been awaiting trial she was it was first scheduled Oh, I can't remember. There was one before, and then there was one in May that was postponed until the 24th of June. That's yesterday. And at the first time, the postponement is a a common thing that the Moroccans do. It it sort of enables them to keep what they see as troublemakers out of circulation for a bit longer. They can just postpone it another month. And it wouldn't have surprised me at all if they had managed to postpone it once again. The other thing that happened last time was that five or seven international observers were expelled from the territory. They, uh, five lawyers had come to observe the trial, plus two Norwegian uh, human rights observers. They were not allowed to attend. this time there were um, three journalists three sorry three Spanish lawyers who were sent back they came on a plane they were not allowed to leave the plane and they were sent straight back to the Canary Islands and two American uh, lawyers came representing the American bar so uh, our association So they still didn't want any international scrutiny on what they were doing. Nevertheless, they apparently did allow some local Sahrawi uh, human rights activists to attend the trial. So that that, that much was okay. And they heard the case and they've announced that the verdict will be given on the 8th of July. So that's where we are up to with Naza.
1: Do we know how she is, her her health?
4: Well, I don't know too much about that, actually. I was hoping that we might be able to link up and have a chat with her, but the timing doesn't work terribly well for this particular broadcast. We might be able to do it another time, perhaps. She uh, she isn't actually in custody. She has been released, so hopefully she'll be able to look after herself if her health isn't ideal.
1: And you can see by reports why these people, these journalists, are so needed in Western Sahara with a a, a very disturbing report of three Sahrawi civilians brutally beaten by agents of the Moroccan paramilitary and security forces.
4: Exactly, exactly. So they, they want to be able to do this with impunity. They do not want to have any scrutiny from the outside world on these activities and some people think it's a odd way for the Moroccans to proceed because if their idea is that Western Sahara already belongs to them but they know that, that they've got to get approval for this, the traditional way of doing it for the United Nations is to have a vote of self-determination and You would think that if the Moroccans wanted to to do this, they would get the Sahrawis. They would be nice to them and make them want to have Moroccan rule. The way they treat them, you know, like this, the Sahrawis would never want to agree to having Moroccan rule in their country. So uh, it it is a bit surprising why they should behave like this.
1: And of course, it's not just the. Sahara, so journalists who are stopped from doing their work. It's the Moroccan journalists as well. Oh, absolutely,
4: yes, exactly. They they have severe penalties. There are three taboo subjects in, in 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 Morocco for the press. One is about the king. You can't say anything at all. You know about his health or his you know life. I mean, you can only praise him and. The other is religion. You can't say anything about Islam that would be in any way regarded as detrimental or critical or whatever. And the third subject is Western Sahara. So uh, journalists who have tried to do do something on the subject of Western Sahara, Moroccan journalists, uh, a a newspaper that published a photograph of the president of Western Sahara... uh, in their newspaper, that journalist got carpeted. I think they, the paper got fined. And um, sometimes they find them out of existence because a small independent newspaper can't afford to have big fines. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, and there's been a lot of trouble up in the Riff area in the north of Morocco. And people reporting on that have had a lot of trouble as well.
1: And what we have in Western Sahara is what's called citizens journalism, isn't it?
4: Yes, citizen journalism—they call it. Yes, that's right. I mean,
1: how do they do it?
4: Well, they they somehow get hold of cameras, and often it's just a phone or a good phone, and when there are is anything happening, and the is are brave, you know, they know that they're going to get. Uh, stamped on for doing it but they like to go out and express their opinions in the street and uh, have their chance go asking for self-determination or or sometimes not particularly for self-determination just for their rights inside uh, morocco as citizens they want employment they want proper housing which are all uh, where, where moroccans are always given priority to these things so, uh, you know, this, this is what they, they, they... And if they show a flag in the public, this is like a red rag to a bull for the Moroccan authorities, and they will immediately try to seize the flag, punish the person who's holding it, and and so on. So the uh, sometimes these... Sahrawis, you know, more or less taunting the police with their uh, waving the flag and trying to keep western sahara alive as a as an issue and they want it to be seen that the sahrawis in no way are compliant with what morocco is wanting to do in their country
1: and we've got to also acknowledge that there are journalist organizations outside of the country who are supporting the sahrawi people
4: oh there are and there has been a very interesting report just in the last A week or so from reporters without borders and it's a it's a really interesting read it's it's not long it's it's about 30 something pages but it's um a very good read actually they they go back they go back with using journalist sources to describe the initial spanish uh colony and then the takeover by morocco and um bringing it up to date the press release was called western sahara a desert for journalism journalists and it's uh, oh i think that's the, the report is called that too actually but uh report, they also call it uh, a no-go zone for journalists and they are very they document all the journalists who have been refused entry or turned back or expelled if they've been discovered, this happened to the, the, the last. You know, this particular recent crackdown started in about 2014, and the only big report that I've seen that's come from a ju- uh, international journalist was from Amy Goodman, who uh, runs a, 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 a an independent broadcasting um, uh, show called democracy now, and she was in Marrakesh for the uh, C-22 climate conference, and she and her team managed to get into Western Sahara, but as soon as the authorities realised what she was doing, they surrounded them in, when they were in a cafe, they wanted to stop them from uh, attending a demonstration at the Sahrawi activists were putting on and they uh, they more or less then questioned you know sent them home again but they by then they had been there for four, uh for four days and the video that they produced afterwards is called 4 days in occupied western sahara so uh, she was able to do that but you know what did she have to say she had, what the main thing that she could report on was Moroccan repression uh, thanks to the Moroccan authorities you know so uh, it's a very odd situation I could just mention uh, when I was recently uh, met met up with a old friend who used to be a member of the European Parliament from Leeds he said that he went once on an official delega- uh, trip to Morocco and when he arrived, they said to him, now, you know, there's three subjects that you mustn't talk about. One is about the king and the other is about religion. And the third thing is about Western Sahara. And he said, oh, well, that's a pity. Those are the three issues. I want to, that's the reason why I wanted to come. <laughs> so uh, politicians aren't allowed to talk about those things as well as journalists.
1: There's been another call for the UN to intervene, isn't Hasn't there, there, with um, monitoring of human rights in Western Sahara?
4: Yes, Dr. Dr. Sidia Omar, the uh, Polisario Front representative to the United Nations, he was um, referring to again one of these violent attacks by plainclothes security forces, and he said that this really shows that the UN must deploy a human rights monitoring mission uh, without further delay in occupied Western Sahara Uh, this has been called for time after time in the Security Council and sometimes with strong backing from the special representative of the Secretary General but always France manages to Veto any extension of the mandate of the UN mission to include human rights.
1: Why do they get away with that, France? Why do they want to do it in the first place?
4: I well, suppose it's a very long story, really, why France is so beholden to Morocco. With
1: just human rights, you'd think, you know?
4: Exactly, and, and the rest of the time, France likes to parade itself as the foundation of human rights liberty, fraternity, uh, egal- equality, and so on. So it, it, it's a bit of a paradox, quite, why they are willing to stick their necks out so
1: much for Morocco on this topic. And of course, because of those five countries control it, you've only got to have one says no, and then nothing goes ahead.
4: Exactly. The, the power of the veto is also under question, really, in, in the UN. But I'm not sure that it's a very active questioning at the moment, but people do raise that sometimes and say it it, it shouldn't really be able, uh, allowed. The whole scene has kind of changed quite a lot since the UN was first set up after the Second World War, so it, it probably would be a good idea to reappraise it and maybe add an african country to the permanent members the permanent members are you know china russia usa uk and france and that's very heavily biased to europe and very unrepresentative of uh, by the very large proportion of the world population in africa and latin america and the rest of
1: asia We still have European countries though, don't we, having support for Morocco's actions in Western Sahara. What's happening in Africa at the moment to support the people of Western Sahara?
4: Well, the African Union, I mean, Western Sahara is a full member of the African Union and that that union set up this little body of of three It's called the Troika. It was like the the present president of the African Union, the past president, and the well, the future one. The, the, presumably there's a kind of vice president that by convention would become the next president. And anyway, I'm not sure that that has really been come very operative. It's one of the, I think it was influenced by the uh, Secretary General's Personal assist, uh, uh, envoy Horst Kurler, who has unfortunately felt it necessary to resign because he wasn't getting proper support from the European Union or the United Nations. Even we don't know quite where where we're up to now with the peace process because of that.
1: And what about the US push for peace? What does that mean?
4: They're very keen. I mean, particularly John Bolton is keen to. Get the so stop, stop the sort of long stalemate that is just keeping the peace mission on the ground, but in a state of no peace and no war. That they hold the ceasefire, but they haven't actually made the peace. The article that you're referring to was by a, a sort of a peace group, I think, who but, but somebody from a um, with a with a. Uh, a military background who was suggesting that what they needed to do was to track diplomacy and to have a lot of more talking between the society members rather than just the political leaders. So you could have academics, you could have community or religious representatives or other grassroots NGOs meeting together and trying to pursue dialogue at that more kind of level right inside society rather than just have the leaders talking among themselves and coming up with some solution they would impose on the the, the society It, it sounds a good idea to me but whether or not it will be anyone's going to adopt it i don't know
1: Okay, but I'll leave it there, Kate, and hopefully in the next couple of days we can do an interview with Nazarene Platt on the program next week. Yes. And that is what the plan is for the program for next week. It's two minutes past five. The largest contingent of US Marines yet has arrived in Darwin to train and prepare Australian forces for a war against China. This emanates from the forced posture agreement between the US and Australian governments signed on the 12th of August 2014 by Julie Bishop on behalf of the Australian Government and John Kerry, Secretary of State, and Chuck Hagel, the Secretary of Defence for the Government of the United States. Bevan Ramsden is a Coordinating Committee member of IPAN, independent, peaceful Australian network and a long-time peace activist and also one of those who were instrumental in the establishment of 3CR back in the early 1970s. Bevan, the Force Posture Agreement was signed in 2014, but the origin of that goes back to 2011 when Obama visited Australia and it was presented as part of the U.S. pivot to Asia and, amongst other things, the relocation of U.S. military forces to the Asia-Pacific regions to counter China. I'd like you to spend some time exploring exactly what it contained in that agreement, which we have entered into for 25 years with the possibility of extension. But you would argue that the process for this began many decades ago. Back to the 1960s.
0: Thank you for letting me talk on your program about uh, US bases and our relationship, Australia's relationship with the United States, a terribly important one and gets us into lots of difficulties and troubles. But, of course, our relationship militarily with the United States began after the Second World War when Australia changed sides from depending on the British for protection, so to speak, to the United States when the Second World War broke out and Britain uh, had to uh, uh, retreat from Singapore and left Australia where we were without any protection. Now, that put us in, that, in the arms of the United States. But that relationship then developed so that the United States started to set up bases in Australia for their own military operations. And in the 60s, a very important one was established, the Pine Gap in Australia and also the Northwest Cape in Western Australia up Geraldton, the North West Cape one was to enable communications with nuclear-armed submarines, America's nuclear-armed submarines. It was a pretty vital one, and even to this day, it's still operational. It's allegedly under Australian control at the moment, Australian uh, defence people uh, run it, but nevertheless, it is still used by the Americans to communicate with their nuclear submarines. An interesting sideline, Jan, is that, on this, is that if Australia was to sign the treaty, the United Nations treaty, to prohibit nuclear weapons, we'd have to break that tie with America. You can't sign that treaty and still offer a nuclear superpower facilities with which they can communicate with their nuclear armed submarines. That's a sideline on this one. Of course, Pine Gap was also established in the, in the and was staffed. Was actually built by the United States. Are staffed by them, with CIA operatives, and um, with some Australians around the place probably doing the cleaning and the catering. But it was American based from the start, and because was, that was a very important factor in the dismissal of the Whitlam government. Whitlam was questioning the role of Pine Gap at that time, and what were the CIA operatives doing? And that was one of the triggers for American intervention in the domestic processes and election and the dismissal of the Whitlam government. That's a long story, and I won't continue on with that now, only to say that if anyone doubts that, Whitlam himself spoke in Parliament in 1977 that he'd had a visit by an envoy of the United States, President Carter's envoy, to apologise to Whitlam for America's interference in the domestic political processes in Australia. Now, that's Hansard. It's on record. Now, let no one ever tell us that the Americans did not interfere in our politics in Australia to get the Whitlam government dismissed.
1: And also, I believe that they, the US has access to smaller... Facilities around Australia, maybe not as big as not as big as um, Northwest Cape or Pine Gap, but still have access.
0: Yeah, there are a number of other uh, installations, including at Shoalwater Bay, where they are going to be conducting a, a big exercise soon in the Talisman Saber exercises. But I really like to go on to Jan, to speak about the the big new agreement. This is the forced posture agreement between the USA and Australia. In a sense, it's a development of, but supersedes in a way, the ANZUS alliance because it's, it's very much more detailed in what it allows the Americans to do in Australia than does the alliance. The ANZUS treaty actually only requires the Australian government to consult with the American government if either should be attacked in the Pacific Ocean. That's all it says. That's all it says. So saying that the, we, we went to a war in Iraq under the ANZUS Treaty is a lie because that's not the Pacific area. So the, the ANZUS Treaty was about what happens in the Pacific area. Anyway, forced posture agreement it was signed in 2014, although it was first touted in 2011 when Obama, uh, in the, pivot, the U.S. pivot to Asia, spoke in Parliament in Canberra in, to both houses and said it's uh, going to bring troops to Australia and they all, they all clapped him by the way they all clapped that, which was surprising actually in retrospect but the agreement enables the stationing in Darwin uh, each year for six months up to 2,500 US Marines and they be up to that this year, They've gone, they're going step by step and they're up to 2,500 US Marines they are uh, trained and equipped for immediate deployment and while in Australia they train with Australian defence forces in war exercises. The agreement gives the US military access to our airfields and our airport facilities for their fighter planes and bombers and access to the seaports for the US naval vessels. It also enables them to pre-position stores, facilities, ammunition on our territory uh, ready for uh, action. In fact, the agreement really makes Australia a base for the US in the Indo-Pacific, Southeast Asia area, from which they can launch hostile acts. And currently, of course, they have their eyes on islands claimed by China in the South China Sea. Um, They also have their sights on the blocking of the Straits of Malacca in order to put pressure on China by blocking a major sea route. You could sum up the American strategy, I think, Jan, as being a policy to contain China in order to maintain their own dominance in the area, that force posture agreement lasts for 25 years with the possible extension, but it can be terminated by either party by giving one year's notice. And indeed, that's what IPAN is in calling for the ending of the station of the Marines in Darwin by saying it can be terminated by giving one year's notice to the Americans if uh, we can get the support and the pressure to do so. The Force Posture Agreement, I say, enables war exercise training between the US and Australian forces. And if I might might do so, um, I'd like to speak about the Talisman Sabre exercise this year, which will be carried out in the middle of July. Now, this war exercise involves some 30,000 Australian and American troops. It's a huge exercise. Some Singaporeans, some Japanese troops... And we've always wondered what the purpose is. It's just explained to us by the government that it's simply, you know, friendly um, get together and uh, practices and uh, interoperability tests and so on. But this year they published, the Defence Department published an environmental impact report on the Talisman Sabre exercise, this huge exercise, trying to convince us that 30,000 troops plus Flying helicopters and ships won't damage the pristine environment of the Great Barrier Reef and the coast of Queensland from Shoalwater Bay up to Strandage Bay. Imagine those troops tiptoeing around so they don't disturb the environment. It's quite ridiculous to think that's the fact. It's a pristine environment of the Great Barrier Reef. Uh, however, in that middle of that report, which is 80 pages long, is a diagram showing what the purpose is of the the war exercise that they're carrying out this year. That's pretty interesting. We haven't seen this sort of thing before. But it's application of a new military concept the Americans called EABO, Expeditionary Advanced Base Operations, that involves capturing islands and island hopping in the South China Sea, like they did against Japan in the Second World War. At the end of the war, they were jumping from island to island towards Japan and establishing a base that way on each island. And this diagram shows that this year, in the two weeks in July, the combined forces are going to capture an island or islands and establish that island for um, forward operations against another island or base, and clearly it's designed for the South China Sea and in a technique that they would use against China. Indeed, the American journals who talk about this EAE say that they believe that Chinese would have difficulty combating this particular technique. So it's clear that it's all about. HMAS Adelaide and HMAS can- Canberra have been modified to have uh, amphibious landing gear so that they can carry US troops or our troops and, uh, and land them on an island or a mainland. And they, that they will be used in the exercise in July. Now. Australian people will never know, never told, except what we can try and get around, that that is the purpose of this big exercise, preparing for a war against China. That in itself is, is a frightening thing. Uh, never before has Australia been faced with a choice. Uh, in the past, the, the military power that they're aligned with are normally their major, our major trading power. But here we have China as our major trading partner power, we work with, and uh, the United States as the major military power that we're associated with, and the two of them are possibly marching headlong towards each other in a possible battle. Australia, therefore, has a, a choice that has to be made, and our conference in Darwin in 2nd 4th of August, the IPAN conference, its title is Australia at the Crossroads, Time for an Independent Foreign Policy, and that's what IPAN is all about, of course, not clinging to the United States, not clinging to China, but taking an independent position and being, trying to be, have mutually peaceful relations and mutually beneficial relations with all countries, including China and the United States. But at the moment, our government is like an ostrich with its head in the sand, pretending you can ride two horses at once. You can ride a China horse and you can ride an American horse, despite the fact that two horses are galloping toward each other in possible conflict in the future. We have to make a choice, and this is a time where Australia too. But we see no evidence in either major party who appeared to be joined at the hip of the United States Alliance, the military. We see no, no signs of recognition of this disaster that's approaching.
1: Can I take you back a step to this agreement where it says that US war supplies, including spare parts, fuels, weapons, ammunition, and bombs, will be accessed here in Australia, does that include or could that include nuclear issues? Because we're supposed to have a nuclear-free country, don't we? Well, who's to say that those bombs and those bombers, or whatever else, are not nuclear-powered?
0: Well, that's a very, very good question. Of course, it doesn't say in this article, I'm I'm looking at the article now, Article 7 of the agreement, it doesn't, of course, mention anything about nuclear weapons or nuclear bombs, and it wouldn't. And um, let's face it, Jan, what, does, what, would, what would we ever be told about that? Uh, the government operates in secrecy. The, the deep state that underlines the government, the intelligence agencies and the militaries, they work, in a, in a sense, almost independent of what the government knows. The government itself doesn't often, often get told. But who knows what they bring in I've actually, I've, been, I've actually written a letter to the defence minister asking whether this agreement prevents or re- would require the, the concurrence of the government to bring in nuclear weapons. We've never got a reply to that. It's a very good question, Jan. say so I don't believe they ever would reply to it. And one wonders whether they would know if it actually happened to say it's the truth.
1: You are listening to Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR and it's Tuesday, home time with Jan Bartlett. And my guest at the moment is Bevan Ramsden, a coordinating committee member of IPAN, Independent Peaceful Australia Network. So what you're saying is that there's no accountability for what might happen. There's no reporting to Parliament of a yearly basis or whatever to show what this force agreement means for Australia.
0: There's no reporting procedure. What did Chris Pine say? I got an answer from Chris Pine on who controls the um, US Marines in Darwin. Um, for example, if they if they went off uh, and launched a hostile act against our neighbours, could Australia stop? Now Chris Pine answered this very definitely: the US Marines at all times are under the control of the United States. But Australia is aware of what is going on and concur, concurs with their actions or something like that. That was his his reply. Now, that doesn't deal with the issue of nuclear weapons or nuclear bombs. But B-51 bombers who can carry nuclear weapons do land do land in Darwin and at Tyndall and um, are, enab- are able to do so under this agreement. And that would perhaps galvanise the population if we knew that they were actually storing nuclear weapons on our soil.
1: And also the impact of up to 2,500 Mainly men, servicemen in Darwin, how that has in the last couple of years and is now impacting on the social fabric of Darwin.
0: Certainly, we've so a group in, in Darwin called Base Watch that look out for uh, this sort of impact. But first of all, there's a noise group in Darwin that's concerned about the increased noise levels around the um, the airports, and uh, especially with times of war exercises. There's also a group about, there's concern about air force pollution of some rivers up there and Base Watch keeping an eye on actions. There's been a couple of reports of sexual assaults and so on, but the, they haven't been tried by Australian courts, they've been hushed up. Uh, ABC reported one that was hushed up. On the economic side, there is uh, there was a study done about economic impact on Darwin of the Marines, of course, they that's positive. That the Marines buy things and they, they um, have to have food and supplies taken to Robertson Barracks. There's a claim that they help to boost in inverted commas the local economy, and that's played up in the press because the Northern Territory economy is in a low it of course, and they say this is one of the one of the boosters to have these Marines in Darwin. They may forget that they were bombed in the Second World War and that the U.S. Marines provide a, a target in any sort of hostile actions with China or any other country, hostile actions, uh, which, who are enemies of the United States, those Marines do attract attention by an enemy of the United States, and, and they could bring hostile acts upon the Darwin and Darwin people. But they don't talk about that sort of thing, or the fact that the U.S. Marines could draw Australia into a war, and they'd still be at the front end there of it. I can't uh, give you any other figures about social impact. We, we are having at the, at the IPAN conference two uh, local representatives of groups that are concerned. I say the pollution and the and the noise. They'll be talking at the conference, uh, but I can't give you any other figures. I do know that there are a number of training areas in the Northern Territory, bombing areas, for example, where they regularly practice bombing, and they. They're really ruining the countryside. They're they're indigenous, well, it's all indigenous land, of course, but these are particular land council, Aboriginal land council areas, and I'm surprised, unless there's there's been money passed around, I'm surprised there hasn't been more protest about this terrible degradation of the countryside caused by the regular bombing that goes on and military exercises with shooting and real bullets and so on.
1: Well, there was a death just recently and people have died during these exercises?
0: Yes. Yeah, there are ones here, and twos here or there. So it hasn't made a huge impact. It doesn't get quite that much in the press when it does happen. There was a case, this is an interesting one, it goes back a few years in one of these exercises. I remember I was teaching that later at the time and I read it in the local newspaper. A little little tiny little bit. that the Americans had accidentally bombed the airport space at Tyndall. In a bombing raid, they missed... They- accidentally bombed some of the staff's sleeping quarters because during the day and no one was in it. But gee, that could have been a disaster at some other time of the day. But those things never get hushed up and never never seen, of course, in the main press.
1: I was thinking too about when you bring a lot of service people in, this prostitution, doesn't matter what country it is, how are they dealt with that in Darwin?
0: There's been agreements and... and, and being signed between the Northern Territory Government and the uh, Robertson Barracks or the US Marines and the the Australian forces there. I'm not uh, familiar with these, Jan. I can't speak about that. But uh, there are are some arrangements and so on. So so there is protest about noise, there's protest about pollution. And there has been cases of of sexual incidents that have been hushed up and haven't been tried in Australian courts.
1: We've only got to have the example of places like Okinawa where the people there have been fighting forever to get rid of the US space there and the the way that the people are just brushed off when there are incidences like this.
0: Exactly. Um, You know, once it takes one's hats off to them, they've been going for years fighting that. But there isn't that sort of awareness in Darwin at the moment among the population of Darwin. And one of the reasons for us, Taking the conference to Darwin is to try and get publicity uh, around the issue of the dangers which the US Marines pose to our peace and security by their presence there and their involvement in the wider American strategies of contention with China. As I said, Australia has to make a decision. You can't go, the governments can't go around with their head in the sand like an ostrich pretending you can ride two horses at once.
1: Is Australia the only country in the region that has one of these force posture agreements with the US, or are there others?
0: Obviously, that that name might might not crop up, but the Japanese and Okinawa and Guam all have some, but they have an agreement, and certainly they have massive US presence on their um, islands, on their country.
1: And the Philippines?
0: The Philippines is changing. There was a stage there where they closed down the Clark Air Base, and that's been reopened. And um, whilst Duterte initially took strong, said strong things about the Americans, that's been uh, toned right down. I think that the military in the Philippines, like in each of the countries that have alliances, the militaries are very close. The Philippine military with the American military, the Australian military with the American military, they're all very close. And um, to some extent, the, the governments are like um, punch and duty shows compared to what goes on underneath in the deep security states, which are the links between the different countries. It seems to be a movement back... I was, I've, I've got relatives in the Philippines, I think Palawan two years ago, and the hotel we stayed in was flooded with American military personnel in Palawan. That's the island closest to China. But I think that the, there's been a movement back to allow, there's well, certainly American forces in southern Philippines allegedly training to combat the, um, the Islamic movements down there. There's certainly Americans down there. And Australia's been helping too. That's something that we're not very happy about in IPAN. But Australia's becoming embroiled in, in some, I call it guerrilla fighting or fighting terrorists down in southern Philippines. That's the way you get drawn in, like in Vietnam, into wider wars, and that uh, we should not be there.
1: What has been any response by China to agreements such as this? Because there must have been talks between the governments. Has, has anything been made public?
0: Well, North Korea, not only China, North Korea, when there was the war of words going on between America and North Korea, North Korea brought Australia into the uh, into the. A discussion pointing out that Australia was in danger because of the US Marines in Darwin and that was said by North Korea but I haven't we haven't heard such things said by China only obliquely to Australia slavishly following the United States in its uh, dominant strategies in the South China sea in its attitude in that south China sea I mean China, has an arc of American bases, dozens and dozens, an arc around from South Korea and Japan, Okinawa, Philippines, down to Australia, across to Singapore and so on. If you look at the map, you'll see these little American flags on some of the maps showing how China is faced by this ring arc of American military, hostile American facilities with missiles and all. And um, they've got good reason to be concerned about the US intentions and certainly they, I'm, not, I'm not a person that thinks we should embrace huh? um, I think we should recognise their position and righting position in the world and respect um, for trade reasons, respect, have some mutual respect uh, and of course China is trying to regain what it feels its rightful place in the world for a hundred years they were treated shamefully it was by the Western powers trodden all over and exploited and they remember that they remember the sign in the Shanghai Park saying dogs and Chinese not allowed they remember this these hundred years of shame as they call it and they're out to regain their what they feel is their acceptance and prestige in the world has got huge, a huge economic power and that requires shoveling pushing around a bit and making one's presence felt and um, of course, the Americans want to remain dominant uh, in the area, and that's, that's the worry about the uh, tension that that creates and what that might lead to. I read a book by Graham Ellison called Destines for War. In it, he, he's analyzed the last four or five hundred years in the world, seen times a rising power has challenged a dominant power, technology power. And in the majority of those cases, it was only resolved, the issue was only resolved by war, which is an ominous sign for, our, for the present situation with China as a rising power challenging the dominance of the United States in the South China Sea.
1: Well, IPAN's going to make its presence felt in Darwin in August. What have they planned?
0: What have we got planned? I'm just re- reading from our, our, our document here. Um, so I said the title is Australia at the Crossroads. Pretty good read for an independent foreign policy we'll be asking the questions why does Australia need an independent foreign policy, what is the extent of foreign military facilities in Australia what is the impact of militarism on the environment and what are the costs of militarism to Australians the present government has embarked on a $200 billion expansion of um, Australia's military facilities, $200 billion dollar expansion. Let's think of what we could do with that to help in, in, if we could put that sort of money to meet social need in Australia with homelessness and the low payments and, or, you know, our medical facilities and everything.
1: That money's not going to defend us. That's going to support the US military war games.
0: Well, that's exactly so that the, the, the type of purchases they are making are designed to fit in with America's strategic plans, war plans, and their interoperability between the two, so that when it comes to a war, America just, just grabs hold of Australia. They've got all the same equipment and they're trained with, their, with our forces and just becomes, they become incorporated into the American effort. And so I think you're right. The $200 billion is not being spent for true defence of this country. And um, in any case, the, the last... Defence White Paper, this is Defence own words, could see a military threat to Australia in, in the foreseeable future. So what are we preparing for? $200 billion sounds like preparing for a war. And as you say, is it really, really uh, strengthening defences that could be used to defend continental Australia, if we needed to, or is it just to help with interoperability and to make Australia another battalion of the American uh, military?
1: how do people get in touch with you if maybe they might be thinking of going to Darwin?
0: Well, look, the the IPAN website uh, has got it all on, and that's just um, ipan.org.au, ipan.org.au, or you could phone, and I'll repeat the phone number, and it's our our chairperson, 431 597 and I'll repeat that, 0431-597-256, Ed Brownlee, but um, certainly rather than try and read off the um, the booking uh, ticket um, details, which is quite a long thing, it's better to go to the ipan.org.au to get details. And we hope that some of your listeners, Jan... I'm talking to your listeners now Guys, this is a pretty important conference It's important, very important issue If you are able to go and boost the numbers And learn all about it And see what you can do And what we can do about it Please come to Darwin 2nd to the 4th of August Thank you, Bevan Thank you, John.
1: And that was Bevan Ramston From IPAN Independent Peaceful Australia Network Music
2: it's on again. Get along to the old Concrete Gang and your radio-thon pull-up for 3CR Radio. Monday, July the 8th, 11am onwards at the Albion Hotel, uh, which is now known as Northport North Port Hotel at 146 Evan Street, Port Melbourne. $20 entry, and that gets you in the door, a feed, listen to Phil Power, one of the greatest bands going around, and a chance to win a $500 door prize. Be there or be square. See you then.
1: What follows is a recording of a speech by anti-war activist Jacob Gregg at the Melbourne Unitarian Church in early June.
5: And thank you all. I'd like to start by thanking Peter and Congregation for their support of 3CR over the years, and for all who are interested, I also have a show on 3CR. I call the Friday Rave, which is five o'clock every Friday afternoon. On Friday just past our time, the extradition trial of Julian Assange began in London in the Westminster Court. At the hearing, a chap named Ben Brandon, who was the brief, the suit, representing the um, US government, said the extradition related to one of the largest compromises of confidential information in the history of the United States. That's true. Julian pointed out in reply that 175 years of his life were at stake because when you add up the sentences for the 18 charges he's faced with in the United States, that's what it comes to, 175 years. And that is, if once he is extradited to the United States, they don't add extra charges on which most commentators agree is more than likely to happen. They can only put certain charges on him at the moment because if they mention some of the other charges, they attract death penalty and the United Kingdom will not be able to send him to the United States. So they're only mentioning the charges that have 30, 40 years prison attached to them. And he'll be kept not in a minimum security prison, but he'll be kept in a very, very maximum security prison. When I start, I want to point out the judge, for example, Emma Louise Arbuthnot, Wasn't having any of Julian's pleas. She'd already called him a narcissist, a coward in previous hearings. She's already made up her mind. We know who she is. And as Julian's life is being poured out to the public for examination, I thought we'd just have a very brief look at who this face of British justice, Judge Emma Arbuthnot is. To start with, she's Lady Arbuthnot of Edrom, and she was made a justice by Queen Lizzie, while her husband, Lord Arbuthnot of Edrom, was a Tory Member of Parliament for North East Hampshire. He was also Chairman of the Defence Select Committee, and the mob who scrutinised the Armed Forces Act, who were ultimately responsible for the conduct of British forces overseas. So he's one of the people who should and could and should be charged with war crimes which have come out the information which Julian and WikiLeaks have revealed. He was also, by the way, Parliamentary Chairperson of the Conservative Friends of Israel and the senior associate of the United Services Institute. And so that's the kind of family we're looking at. You know, during his time as a Tory MP, on the other hand, he was involved in a a scandal, an expense scandal, when he was using government funds to get his pool cleaned and his summer house refurbished. So these are the kinds of people who are now dispensing justice. To Julian Assange, an Australian bloke from Melbourne who's been denied his freedom since August 2010, nine years for the crime of exposing western government's dirty secrets and political parties he's been denied more than his freedom medical reports from the un doctors who visited him say that he's exhibiting all the physical and mental signs of psychological torture he's unwell he's lost a huge amount of weight and just two weeks ago the court system deemed that he was too sick to attend court From the court yesterday, where he appeared by video link, he was clearly a sick man. Nonetheless, they keep him in a prison built for terrorists and murderers. In his cell for usually 23 hours a day, with no access to any of the resources he needs to organise his legal defence. He has limited access to his lawyers. His own father, John, went to visit him a couple of weeks ago and missed out on visiting him because the time he was booked in to see him was the only time the British justice system could find to send a doctor to attend to Julian. These are the kind of games they're playing. Okay, he stayed in London an extra week and saw him last Friday, but that's what they're playing. Julian's been vilified and demonised. He's been turned into an Emmanuel Goldstein sort of character, a caricature in fact. He's been accused of being a rapist, a spy, a terrorist, a traitor, an anarchist, a narcissist, a misogynist, control freak. Putin's bitch was one of his more favourite ones, in league with Trump. And he's been called these things by politicians, media moguls journalists courts and unfortunately activists as well of course have been an anti-semite anti-arab a zionist an anti-zionist anti-union anti anti Christmas. he's been called the antichrist in fact un-australian un-american he's australian he's been called a nazi alt-right alt-left A Democrat stooge in the early days, later to be replaced by a Republican stooge. And he was even called public enemy number one. All by people who still seem to garner what passes for respect in what I call polite society and yet when any of these individual allegations are investigated from the Swedish allegations where a condom allegedly torn by Julian purposefully, mid-sex was produced as evidence that had no DNA on it, it was a new condom to the allegations of being in Trump's camp when his comment on the last US elections were that it was a choice between cholera and gonorrhea, describing the choice between Clinton and Trump, I'd believe, respectively, to being Putin's bitch when WikiLeaks have released thousands and thousands of documents from Russian sources that do Putin or the Russian government no favours whatsoever. There has not been a single allegation, to my mind, that holds any water. Not a single one. And when I say that, I'm quite willing to listen to any allegation anyone in this room has today. If they've got any proof or any evidence that they'd, for argument's sake, be willing to tender as evidence at a commission hearing, let alone a grand jury or an extradition hearing. Now, I said that same thing at another talk I gave a few weeks ago, and someone came to me after the meeting and said, I met him once in the early days. I can't support him. I said, why not, man? He said he was abrasive and dismissive. Okay. And I say that last bit because it's so indicative of the discourse that has grown up around the man that just about everyone, it seems, even people who allege to say they support him, or even people who say they don't really support him, but they don't believe he should be extradited to the US for espionage, continue to play the line that he's not a nice man. In this room, I know many of you, and I know that we've been privileged in our lives as working politically on the left, to meet Some of the greatest leaders society, our end of society, has thrown up. How many of them have not been abrasive and dismissive from time to time? And I see you smiling for yourself. and I know that every one of us has had an opportunity in our political lives. When we're listening to one of our leaders, union leaders, Labour leaders, whatever, give an impromptu remark, we've all put our head in our hands and said, "Geez, comrade, did you really have to say that? We've all done that. Yeah, he can be abrasive. And dismissive at times you see Julian like all of us is a man a human being he's not an angel he's not Francis of bloody Assisi he's a bloke from Melbourne he came down here from Townsville with his family to go to Melbourne UD as a young bloke a computer geek a nerd frankly after playing around it's rumored nothing's been confirmed or denied breaking into databases of arms companies like Canada's Nortel and NASA which he got busted for. He then went on to help the Victorian police break a child sex exploitation ring in the nether regions of the internet. He then set up Melbourne's first free public access internet service, Suburbia. And why do they do this? Because like all of us, all of us in this room, he believed in the fundamental truth and I say this in the Unitarian Church, of the inherent worth and dignity of every human being, that everyone should have access to information to help them learn the truth. And he was part of the cyberpunk culture that I, and I don't think anyone else here, a couple of young folks in the back, would not have got into, but that just meant he was able to have fun doing it. He was part of the music scene, part of the rave scene, whatever. He was able to have fun while he was doing what he was doing. And what that was, and this is important, because we talk about leaks and the rest of it, but to get underneath what he was doing, he understood that the control of information lay at the heart of power. And it's the things he said. It's always been the case. We know that. We've said it all our political lives. As a computer geek of his generation, though, Rather than seeing it in terms of class exploitation, he saw it in terms of communication security and the imbalance of power which lay at the heart of information technology. We would say that lay at the heart of the capitalist system. Today, the state, the capitalist system, call it what you will, not only controlled what information we had access to, but they had free and unfettered access to all, all of our information. And so he and his friends set about developing software that would enable all of us to keep our communications secure at the cutting edge of digital cryptography. The kind of security systems that only last year led the federal government, with the support of the opposition, I must add, to pass the telecommunications assistance bill to four companies to help them crack these kind of security systems in secrecy, which it was one of the earlier works that Julian was building on. They were taken on the system. But keeping their own communications, all of our communications secure, is only half of the job. To continue the analogy I commenced earlier, it's never just about workers becoming more empowered. The flip side of it is holding the bosses to account. And so WikiLeaks' first incarnation was born to encourage people with information about the truth of what was really going on to come forward safely, anonymously. And the heart of WikiLeaks is the maths and the programming behind it, which enables us to go to the website and dump a document that they can't trace where it come from. That is amazing maths. Put everything else, put all the politics aside. That is amazing maths that Julian and his mates come up with. We're talking here about the early years of this century, the early 2000s. Back to my script. When the news cycle was full of Howard bullshitting about children overboard. When the Australian Wheat Board was busy in the back room shredding documents about its bribes to Iraq. When no one knew, or still knows to this day for that matter, what exactly happened at the World Trade Centre that day in September. And then of course there were the weapons of mass destruction, which were being used as justification for the kind of atrocities that even us and our darkest thoughts wouldn't have imagined. We can't talk about WikiLeaks, let alone talk about Julian. And it wasn't just Julian. He was at the centre of it. He was the sometimes dismissive and abrasive leader who ran with it, took carriage with it, if you like, and ultimately carried it and is still carrying it since then. But we can't talk about WikiLeaks or the broader movement for transparency and internet security outside of the context of the times. The time when the Western world, the coalition of the willing, was going to war on the axis of evil, making it sound like some kind of Tolkien-esque nightmare in a quest for freedom and justice, which we all know, and we all knew at the time, was anything but. It was in this climate of street marches every other week, big public meetings, small cafe conversations, discussing the war, of journalists debating weapons of mass destruction, of trade unions taking stands from the boardroom of the ACTU to toolbox meetings on sites. It was a time when churches, not just the Unitarian, were speaking about these issues from the pulpit. This is the climate that WikiLeaks was born in, a climate where everyone knew we were being lied to, but none of us had the means to prove it. WikiLeaks was born as an organisation to enable people who had access to the truth to let the rest of us know what was going on whilst protecting themselves from oppressive laws. And it's exactly this that lay at the heart of the charge of Julian assisting Private Manning. Private Manning, I've got to say, already had access to the documents they leaked. What Julian did was not hacking, was not giving him her access to classified material it was helping them cover their tracks so that people didn't know. It wasn't a hacking job. So they did that. It was born as part of the broad peace movement that was happening here in Melbourne that led to first major march in that weekend of marches where we had impossible number to say because they shut down the tram, bus and train services. But we say 300,000 people on February the 14th, 2000 and whenever it was, three, I think.
1: You are listening to a talk recorded at the Unitarian Church in early June by anti-war activist Jacob Greck.
5: So it had all that kind of hope and aspirations, however ill-founded and naive it may look a dozen or so years later. It was about transparency and truth, and it still is. While Julian is in Belmarsh, there are still people loading documents up to the WikiLeaks site. There are still people supporting WikiLeaks, going through researching the documents and verifying their veracity, if you will. And WikiLeaks is the only publishing organisation that has never, ever, not once, been forced to make or, or had to make an apology forced or otherwise, to say what we said was wrong. Everything that has published has been true. Nobody has doubted the veracity of a single document. Without WikiLeaks and private money, we wouldn't have had access to the collateral murder videos that showed did Patchy Chopper, gunning down people that knew to be journalists, medics and children. Without WikiLeaks, we wouldn't have the details of what happened at Guantanamo, at Abu Ghraib. We wouldn't have had documented evidence of hundreds of war crimes perpetrated against people of Afghanistan and Iraq by Australians, Americans and British troops. We wouldn't have had access to the US government's complicity in the arming and support of dictatorships. We wouldn't have had evidence of arms deals, of bribes, of evil and corruption in high places. We already knew it, or at least we assumed it, but what WikiLeaks gave us and gives us is the evidence. Without WikiLeaks, we wouldn't have had Edward Snowden, by his own admission. We wouldn't have had the documents that show that places like Pine Gap and Codgerima are actually the war-fighting bases that we've always said they were, all along. We wouldn't have had the proof, the details of the massive surveillance operations, like PRISM and X ski store. Without WikiLeaks, we wouldn't have had the Stratford papers. We wouldn't have had the Pentagon papers, the US diplomatic cables. All the emails from the US Democratic National Committee exposing the filthy campaign they ran to get Hillary Clinton elected at all costs, which ultimately failed and led to the election of Trump. Without WikiLeaks, we wouldn't have had the text of the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement. We wouldn't have the details, word by word, of the CIA involvement in the French elections. We wouldn't know the programs exposed by rafts of leak they call Vault 7 and Vault 8 um, detailing the actual method, step by step, that the CIA uses to spy on people. What they've given us, we wouldn't have had the proof. Of the Israeli government's knowledge and planning to starve the people of Gaza under siege. People have said, even now, they say that's a byproduct. No, we have proof through leaked documents, through leaked emails, that that is their plan and has been their plan all along. We know that, but we also have proof. WikiLeaks has given us the tools to work against war and as a result have been relentlessly and viciously attacked. And not just mm, Julian and WikiLeaks. Chelsea Manning's in prison for refusing to testify. Edward Snowden's in exile hiding. Ola Binney is in jail in Ecuador. Aaron Swartz is dead. Suicide, apparently. A journalist, Maltese, compatriot of mine, Daphne Caruana Gal- Galitiari, um, was murdered by a car bomb after being threatened over her work on the Panama Papers. Here in Australia, we have Witness Kay and Bernard Collery being tried for leaking information that ASIS bugged the East Team Marie's cabinet rooms so that we can get a better price for oil. We have David McBride slated for trial in two weeks for leaking the Afghan files that led to the AFP rage on the ABC headquarters last week. David, by the way, is the son of William McBride, the doctor who blew the whistle, as it were, on the effects of thalidomide on unborn children. We have Annika Smethurst, a Murdoch journalist, being raided by the AFP for publishing information which was true about the federal government's plan to increase the power of the Australian Signals Directorate, we used to know it as the DSD, Defence Signals Directorate, which is part of the Five Eyes Intelligence Network, to increase their power to spy on Australians. And it was, again, the front page of the age story, page of the age newspaper yesterday. And of course, that's not to leave out Julian, who as I said at the start is in Belmarsh Prison during the trial to see him be extradited. Now, it's not an ordinary prison. Let me talk about Belmarsh just for a moment. The BBC called Britain's Guantanamo. It said, and I quote from 2004, you don't have to go to Cuba to find terror terror suspects controversially imprisoned, referring to Guantanamo. Nine foreigners have been held in London's notorious Belmarsh prison for almost three years without charge or trial. And today, it seems, whistleblowers and journalists who report their information the new terrorists And I'm not just using that analogy rhetorically. WikiLeaks has been referred to as a non-state terrorist organisation. Various pundits and politicians, including Clinton and the like, have either called for Julian's assassination or questioned whether it's possible. See, once you're labelled a terrorist, anything is possible. You can, as the FBI did, plan to spy in the movement like Adrian Lamo, the dog who lagged Manning. You can have a CIA task force aimed at destroying Wikileaks with 300 people working on nothing but destroying Wikileaks that we've known has been in place since 2010. You can do anything. We had a very peaceful vigil outside the UK consulate on Friday, and a friend and I were arrested on a whole lot of charges. The the ham sandwich, you know the ones. You can create narratives of sexual abuse and perversion, like they've done with everyone labelled a terrorist from Martin Luther King onwards. You can have whole articles removed from the websites. And that's the stuff we know, and we have details on. You can stop their bank and their online payment systems like they have to WikiLeaks to starve them of funds. And then to get all um, Rumsfeld in about it for a moment there are the unknown unknowns. The thing we don't know that they're doing. But we can put one and one together and get two. We know about the very recent undercover police operations in New Zealand, Canada, the United States and the United Kingdom. There have been theses, whole books written about it. It's even been reported in the mainstream press. We know about undercover police operations here in Australia. Australia, you've known them. And then we can look at who the loudest detractors of WikiLeaks and Julia in particular are in the activist community here in Melbourne and wonder. Here in Melbourne, there is more anti-Julian rhetoric in the activist so-called peace, environment, human rights movement than there is anywhere else in the world. Some of them even use the term whistleblowers in their name. There's been so much disinformation that a couple of young blokes, a friend of my son's, said to me, yeah, we know Jacob, but sticking your head up for the bloke is suicide at the moment. They'll be labelled rape apologists. And as young 20-year-old blokes on the market in Melbourne, the last thing you want to be called is a rape apologist. Let's not make any bones about it. Whistleblowers are the new terrorists. And it may surprise you to hear this, but I agree, they are. You see, when we come to think of terrorists, we've come to think of terrorists as a person or organisation using violence for political ideology. Hijackings, car bombs, suicide vests, nightclub explosions and the like. Those things terrify me. Of course they terrify me. I've been in places in the world where these kind of things happen. Some of you have too. I'm scared of them. And I condemn those acts of violence every bit as much as I condemn the legal terrorism we see all the time in Syria, Gaza, Sudan, Yemen, and the like. And they're just the current, dare I say popular ones at the moment. But violent extremism is meant to terrify us, the people. Not the government, not the state, not the corporations that profit from it. Violent extremism, terrorism, has been been absorbed into the capitalist framework if you look at the share prices of the biggest arms companies and security firms every time there is a terrorist attack anywhere in the world they jump they make money from terrorism they love it governments just use it to justify more spending on the national security apparatus and to make laws taking away people's freedoms our freedoms it doesn't scare them at all let alone terrify them terrorism doesn't terrify the state just us what does terrorism Them though, and what makes them shit in their pants and quake in their boots, frankly, is the truth and the notion that people can have access to it. What scares them is that they can lose control of the narrative, and that is why they consider people like Julian, like Chelsea, like Edward, like Daphne, like Aaron, like us terrorists because they're terrified and they should be because when your whole system is built on an edifice of lies the only thing that can bring it crashing down is the truth and so I'm going to end in the usual way by asking what is to be done and that's a two pronged question the first part of the question is what's to be done to protect Julian and all I can say is to make your demands, demand your local member to say something, demand your union demand any organisation you're a part of, to defend Demand your counsel. Telling me what needs to be done in that respect is like telling a grandmother how to suck eggs. I'm not going to do that. But there's another half to the question, and that is what is to be done about journalists and whistleblowers being treated as terrorists? And Julian's answer to that, as he was being carried out of the Ecuador embassy towards Belmas Prison, was you can resist. And that's where I'm going to leave you today, comrades. You can resist, and we all need to resist.
1: And thanks to Jacob Gregg for that speech at the Unitarian Church a couple of weeks ago and of course he has a program here on Fridays at five o'clock so something to listen into that's all for me for today I'll be back next Tuesday at four o'clock bye for now